Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design, and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. This episode, Real-Time Innovation, Ideating the Future, is a look into a cross-discipline research class at the University of Cincinnati named Inquiry to Innovation, Future of Work. We are joined by Aaron Bradley, Associate Professor at University of Cincinnati, and Dominic Iacobucci, Workplace Client Leader at BHDP, to speak about the typical format of the class, how it originated, evolved, and is now adapting to remote learning during the COVID-19 pandemic. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a Workplace Strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guests introduce themselves further. So my name is Aaron Bradley, Associate Professor at the University of Cincinnati. I teach classes primarily on design thinking, innovation, and digital storytelling. And so that could vary depending on what the topic or the challenge at the time is, but there's generally a theme of teaching classes that are focused on being cross-disciplinary, focused on using design thinking techniques to come up with generating new knowledge or new ideas and pushing ideas past maybe where they currently exist. And also a big focus on classes that are experiential and creating sort of transformative experiences that maybe blend or hybridize the classroom and being out of the classroom. Sure, that's extremely helpful. And I don't think I've ever heard the word hybridize before, but I like it very much. Dominic is also with us today. Introduce yourself and tell us how you're involved with the class. Uh, This is Dominic Iacobucci. I'm a partner workplace strategist and client leader at BHP Architecture. My involvement with the class actually started with the inception of this concept of future of work. When we started that in 2012, 2013, we had a very specific year targeted on the calendar of 2020 being the future of work. And now here we are in CV19. And I can very confidently say that this was not anything that any of us predicted. Uh, <laughs> but we're, we're starting to experience it and think about it and live it in a very real way. So while BHCP is a architecture firm focused on workplace, all of our collaborations with UC to date have been very much focused on work and human behavior, which is, which is pretty cool. Dominic, this was, as I understand it, your idea from the beginning. How did you get this collaboration going with University of Cincinnati? So the first class started in 2012-2013. The iteration that we're currently working with, Aaron, is probably the ninth or tenth iteration of the class. Under this idea of innovation inquiry, I think we're at the fifth or sixth version of that genesis. The idea was when we were designing workplace back in the early teens, we were trying to decide how we did it better to support work. And the belief was that if we could go talk to multiple people or even talk to the future generations that would be in the workplace and talk to them about work, we could better design workplace. So we went and collaborated with the University of Cincinnati and we sought a multidisciplinary class with students from social sciences, engineering, business, design, pretty much anyone that we could pull in to take on this topic. And we found success with it. And as we've evolved it, we found more and more success. Aaron, I want to ask you too. So typically we talk about this being a cross-disciplinary class. We've got students from different experience levels, different majors and focuses. How is the class typically taught? I know we're in extreme times right now, but what's the normal operations for the class? I would categorize it usually as a hybrid, maybe. We've hybridized a studio and a seminar. There's content that's delivered through 
reading an article and discussing it or content that's delivered through demonstrating a tool or technique that maybe you could use to brainstorm or to organize abstract thoughts. And then we'll spend way more time in a class trying that and playing with it, trying it on, practicing it, having somebody be the sort of impromptu guinea pig and demoing how it would work. And then using our time together as a class to then sort of break down what we saw happening when someone used the tool that we were demonstrating and then send the groups off to work on those things individually. So, uh, you know, as the faculty member in the class, I look at it as looking at the structure of we have this amount of time together and what are we going to do with that to maximize the use of all of the different diverse minds that are in that group and all the different backgrounds that are not even necessarily just the discipline-based backgrounds but the unique world perspectives and life perspectives and where these students' heads are at in that moment based on what they're doing in their lives in and out of school, how do we leverage that to the most ability while we're together? And rather than that being me lecturing on a topic or pointing out references to things that they could go look at elsewhere, we need to take advantage of those people that are in the room at the time. We use a lot of that time to just be interactively high energy, doing things together. We get up and move around a lot. We can very easily migrate the group from being all together, discussing one topic to then breaking off physically in the room to going and working on something that they're touching with their hands and they're moving post-its around. And then maybe we all move as a group to rotate around to those various places in the room to watch what a group is doing. I had a student last semester tell me in their final reflection that this was the most physically active class that she had ever had. She was a fifth year <laughs> senior getting ready to graduate. And she said, just the pace with which we move and interact and engage our bodies in what we're doing during this class keeps me more stimulated than I would be in a class where I'm sitting and listening to content. So I would say it sort of feels like a studio in that you're there for a long time. And a lot of times you're breaking off and working independently under some guidance from a peer or from one of the instructors but it's still not a complete studio because you're not necessarily spending hours on end just independently drawing or working on something. The points to really reinforce from what Aaron's saying on that class is the fact that it's very paper intensive, very marker intensive, post-it notes, lots of collaboration in and out, constantly moving, constantly interacting in space with people, changing the dynamic of how you think about interaction because it's not lecture style all collaboration and it's all based off of trying to solve a problem that has no answer that's clear cut which is an important defining metric of what they're trying to do yeah if i can just build on that a little bit that probably has been one of the biggest things that i think has challenged us to iterate on this class model even we started off with knowing that what we were doing was different than a traditional classroom model dominic and i didn't realize how different it was going to be than what these students were used to, just because we maybe approached our education and our work lives and everything in a way that was more modeled around this idea of constant interaction and bouncing in and out of things. And so it just sort of took for granted that most students have never been challenged to practice that. And so we went through a really steep learning curve of having to work through the tension of seeing how students reacted. Some of that was just them not being prepared for even being asked to behave that way in a classroom environment. So it's interesting how we've gone from studying the ambiguity of the future of work as a topic and then actually learning just as much about studying it through our research as we have about experiencing it with the students by watching how they react to the ambiguity of a classroom or a project that doesn't have a very clear right answer. 
And I know that there was a change made last year to the structure of the class. It used to be that there was one research topic for the entire semester. You want to talk about the change that was made from that structure to where it came to today? The idea was, is we wanted to get a robust topic each time we did a semester where students beat up the idea and the concept. They brought in information and research, and then they had a prediction of the future and with a prediction of the future of why they thought it was relevant. Kind of going to where Aaron was talking, we had always been comfortable taking a project for a long period of time and beating it up a lot and beating it up in a lot of different ways and thought that that would get us to a stronger solution. But what we've actually found is that while we thought time was our friend, it was more of our enemy, which kind of led to this new model. Aaron, maybe you can kind of explain the sprinting model that we're using. So similarly, you would think, you know what, if we had a whole semester for these students to play with this idea and iterate on it, they'll just keep getting better and better ideas. After having tried that enough times that we saw a similar kind of point at which their idea generation slowed down or they got hung up, you started to kind of realize somewhere around like the sixth to eighth week of the semester, the newness of this model and way of doing it had worn off and they had kind of tried to slip back into the old way of thinking through like how I would behave in a lecture class where I'm just trying to get to the final project. The idea generation wasn't getting any better. And so there was actually a really key turning point that happened at the final class in the spring semester of last academic year. The class had given their final presentations that had been a semester long journey. They gave them down at BHDP's headquarters, got lots of feedback, and we have this final class of the semester. And for a lot of these students, if they're graduating, this is like the last class they may even take as a college student. And we're reflecting on what was great about the journey and what they learned along the way and what was good and what was bad. And then we hit a point where even that conversation was kind of stalling. And so in that moment, I had this immediate thought of like, well, you know what, what if instead of going out on a low note, let's go out on a high note, we have an hour of class left. If I challenged all of you to spend the next hour figuring out how you would capture what this journey has looked like from you and what you've learned, what your reflections are in a way that you could pass it off to the next class after you, what would you do with that in an hour if that was a blank canvas? And we literally have an hour because this class ends. And so it was so cool was that in that moment, we started using all the tools that we had taught the students to use in terms of how to brainstorm and how to organize sticky notes or like how to bust through a barrier when you can't come up with a new idea. We started using that on how we would apply it right there in the moment to this class of, okay, you've got an hour to figure out how to share what you've learned over 15 weeks. It's been transformational. How do you tell the next group about it? And so it very quickly started iterating and turning into the class breaking into two groups, one group that was focusing on one method of communication, one that was on another. And then within those divisions, they broke themselves into subgroups of how they would tell the story. And so I watched over an hour of me just having to kind of float around and prompt ideas here and there where one group of students was making a zine that they would use to sort of tell the story in eight pages of this is what our class did and what we learned from it. And then another group, they mocked up a website using a free Wix template of like, here's some things that you might experience along the way. And if you're feeling this way at this point in time, just trust the process because here's what we did. And then another group grabbed some chairs on wheels and their phones. They went out to a space outside and used the chair with wheels and their phones and started shooting a little movie where like one person was in the middle and the other one, a student was pulling 
the other student who had their phone and camera around in a circle so they could do this cool like in the round video thing and they were interviewing each other on 60 second <laughs> tips of like how to succeed in the class right and so in one hour they pulled all that stuff together and they were energized and having fun and smiling and laughing and i had this moment watching that of realizing that's the energy level that we want to capture for the entire semester. And we did that by putting some constraints on it, by giving them some very clear things to work on with a limited amount of time. And it, it helped them get over that hump of feeling like they had to just beat an idea up forever and that somehow that would make it get better. Well, Aaron, I think there's some things that are really important there that we can build on that everyone can apply, right? It's this concept of not giving too much time. And I think we've found pretty much brainstorming any more than 15 minutes starts to see diminishing returns. I think the other piece is, is that people actively creating something while they're ideating and being okay with it being loose and messy and dirty and interesting also brings high returns with students as well as with professionals. I think a lot of times we're so focused on the presentation and the final product and how nice it looks and how awesome it is and give me the grade or in real world, give me the promotion that it actually <laughs> restricts the creative thinking. We've been more successful with very short sprints, actively working on something that then gets built. The other piece that we've been doing with these sprints is we've been trading off people's work. So you don't own the same piece of work throughout the whole semester. You work on it for a while. Another team takes it for a while. You may get it back. You may not. You may work on something else. And then that's also taken away that barrier because at that point, even if you do get it back, it looks different and has so much freshness to it that it regenerates your thinking and your creativity on the subject. One of the biggest anxieties, because I've had the benefit of witnessing this class over a few years, is when... We were doing a traditional way of people doing the one topic. There was a lot of, what is it that you're looking for? What do you want me to do? Like people were still looking to check boxes on expectations and not really doing some wildfire exploring, which is what we want more of. And even at the beginning of each class, the students come in to BHDP and ask us questions. It seems somebody always says, what does BHDP hope to get out of this? And while it's an interesting question, my answer would be, almost always be, I want to be surprised. I want to learn something. I want to get excited about what you're excited about. It's hard to do that when people are trying to uh, perform towards a metric. Real world example of that is anyone that's ever been worried about the presentation or the PowerPoint yeah. meet with a client or a boss or a boss's boss versus the content and the, the reason for the meeting, which happens all the time. Well, and I think that part of what that realization did, at least for me as you know, a faculty member teaching this class, was realizing that if we were going to really approach this as a collaboration where BHDP is helping to co-create educational content and deliver it with us, that we should actually put just as much emphasis on teaching the class and delivering it in a way that teaches the students how to behave differently than maybe what they expect and how to behave in a way that fits what they're going to be expected and asked to do to add value when they go and get a job. There's intentionality in teaching the class in a way that we're actually saying to students, we're going to challenge you and make you uncomfortable to behave in this class in a way that actually is what's going to help you add way more value 
when you go and get a job somewhere and work for a place where mm-hmm. they say, okay, we hired you for the ideas you can generate, not for the tactical manual things that you are able to churn out in an assembly line style fashion. I think it's a good transition to kind of what we're dealing with now. And I know one of the things that we want to talk about is how do you continue to stem ideation and creativity in a world where you don't necessarily have the face-to-face and you don't have the post-it notes and you don't have all of the moving around all the time that's kind of defined this class to date. Yeah, if you're posing it to me as a question of how we've done it, I'll answer you with a work in progress. So (laughs) we've been forced to embrace ambiguity more so than we ever thought we would. And you know, I was reflecting on this a little bit earlier and trying to think of like, well, what are the big takeaways and big wins from this? And to be frank, like right now, I don't think that there is a big takeaway of like how you succeed at this. I think if anything, it's challenged me to think about the intentionality required to create those kinds of experiences. Whereas before we could set up the general framework for how a brainstorm session would work or how an ideation session would happen. And it reminded me of, playing improv jazz. You set up the general structure for it, but then somebody starts the jam and then we react to what the other people are doing and then it kind of builds from there. That's a whole lot harder when we're not there experiencing things in the same room and at the same time, right? And so it's for me changing the process of how is the facilitator and how the the architect of the experience, it's changing how much I have to think through the end result that I want to drive after having had these students in this virtual collaboration environment for 90 minutes in a class session. So there's good things that have come from that. And it's really challenging me to explore different kinds of tools that I can use to be more efficient to kind of set those things up. And it's really challenging me to think through like, how do I want to drive an end goal out of their time together? But I would say that one of the downsides of it is that there is a little bit of that iterative participation that the students have is lost a little bit in it because they're kind of working their way through a more prescribed set of things that we've built for them versus just kind of allowing them to sort of fall into things and for beautiful ideas to pop out of that. I think that the students are currently viewing this as a short-term issue. So if you're listening to this at some date in the future, right now it's April of 2020 and we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So they're having to continue this class remotely. And I think a few of them are on the mindset of, well, we just need to finish this semester. And then by the time we come back to school or whatever, it'll all be fixed. But I wanted to push them a little bit today to say, what if it's not? What if it keeps going like this and let them know that like Dominic or what even Aaron, you were saying before, this is about a skill that you can build that will make you more valuable as an asset to an employer going forward, if you can say, I know how to co-create even when I'm not in the room and nobody else is either. That level of ambiguity, I think I want to keep pushing them and see what we can get out of that. So I know you said work in progress and for sure, it's going to be a challenge to keep people engaged. If you bring it back to what we're trying to do in terms of create and innovate and ideate and push the limits of thinking in kind of short-term and long-term spurts, I can say that at least in terms of stuff that we've started to do and even Aaron started to experience with the class, there's things that we do do physically that don't work in this virtual world. Like let's just take size of a group, for instance. If you're really trying to create something, size of a group in a virtual world almost has to be smaller. 
And for anyone listening to this podcast, you're probably hearing it in terms of our situation right now, since we're all virtual to each other. No matter how much we want to be real time, we can't be real time. Because you have that digital lag, you can't actually get into a flow of a conversation. And when you're getting into ideating, ideating is all about using and and building on ideas. And building on ideas gets so hard that there's a lot of people that just disengage themselves from the dialogue, which they wouldn't necessarily doing in the room. Now, on top of that, if someone does disengage in the room in an ideation session, in a creative session, usually you can see their body language and you can see that they're disengaged, which I got to imagine, Aaron, for you is super tough right now as a professor to how do you find that student that's not engaging and bring them into the dialogue so they have the opportunity to add value because they could be someone that's thinking really hard and has a ton of value, or they could just be totally disengaged and in la-la land. But either way, that becomes harder. So what, it, what we're starting to see in this ideation, creativity, uh, in a virtual world, you almost need to get to groups of three or four tops. And that's tough. This wasn't an intentional change, but by default, we've changed to now front-loading every class with updates that are really important and mission critical. What questions does everybody have because you're feeling disconnected, right? And you spend all this front-loaded time, almost feels a little bit closer to one of those lecture-style classes, right? And then we are breaking off. We're using the functionality of things like Zoom and Teams to kind of like create breakout rooms for each of the teams to work together. So I'm thankful that that exists and I'm seeing that work to some degree. But even so, that doesn't now really practically happen until the, the last part of the class. We send them off to go do some things, and then I come around and join them. And part of what that even does, too, is when you're joining a group physically in a studio space, I can be in the middle of talking to a group and then notice out of the side of my eye, like, oh, that group over there seems to be struggling right now. I should probably wrap this up because this group, even though we're in the flow and it's going well, my job now is probably to actually like trust that you're on your way and hop over and help them. But when you go from breakout room to breakout room, there is zero way to tell that unless one of those groups pings me in the, the tool to say, hey, we're struggling. Can you come help, right? You're also not getting the groups actually being able to build on each other because they can hear the conversations or see the conversations, which we typically had in the class just with post-it note exercises and charts and diagrams and whatever other tool we might be using. All of that's lost. You know, it was interesting, the last group that came through that did the sprints, two of the topics that came through were regarding artificial intelligence. And one was how much of your life are you willing to let an AI have control of? That would be really fascinating now to see if something like that would benefit from the remote thing. Is there some level that AI could help you know, hey, you better go check on this other team? You think about a tool that doesn't exist yet that we would dream up as a futuristic thing. That is interesting. Like what is an artificial intelligence version of like an extra set of eyes that can see in every one of your virtual breakout sessions that's happening and give you real-time feedback on what the activity level is like. That could be really interesting. Like gives you the ability to be present at least passively in six places at one time and then get a notification of which one you should be most active in at the time. You know, something that was fascinating that happened as far as how people collaborate that I witnessed the other day, a group of people that I know decided to have a happy hour. And one of the guys that was in the call, he's not as comfortable with technology because his job in real life is very hands-on. But he is a social butterfly. He's very gregarious when he's out in public, and his favorite thing to do is go out, have a drink, and shoot the breeze with somebody. 
well, they put this virtual happy hour together because we can't all be in the same place right now. And normally this guy who's the social butterfly that's going around and talking to everybody sat stoically through most of it because he didn't feel comfortable in the environment. And I wonder if comfort has something to do with kind of the slow upswing we've seen of the students participating because they're like, well, how do I do this? But they also, I noticed with the students, because these kind of tie together in my mind, you were presenting something today, Aaron, on your screen, and I couldn't see what you were doing because something was happening. None of them spoke up. And I actually sat there going, is somebody going to say something? And finally I did, and they were all like, no, no, we can't see it either. They were not comfortable letting you know they couldn't see what you were doing, and they were just kind of going with it. I wonder yeah. how much of that happens. I think it's a great observation. I was glad that you did that because I was completely unaware too. What you're saying kind of points to a, a larger discussion that I think is worth having about this whole thing of, you know, what we're trying to teach the class versus what we realize we should be teaching them. All of that is that the nature of what a higher education degree should do for you is prepare you to be able to then launch off. It's like putting an exponent on your equation, right? Of like what you're going to be able to accomplish moving forward into all these roles. It's not to teach you like tactical skills. Maybe part of what you're doing is learning certain frameworks or things that you can apply later. But realistically, it's about sharpening the tools in your toolkit so that you can go off and be ready to go tackle real world challenges where nobody tells you what the final assignment has to look like and that kind of thing, right? And so I think that, that we already knew that and we were building this class in a way to try and enhance preparing students for the reality of what they were going to be asked for when they left here. But this unique situation is actually highlighting even more the importance of building those kinds of skills in something as simple as being willing to say in a moment, hey, I'm going to raise my hand, whether that's a virtual hand raise or physically doing it and just say, like, I don't think I understand what you're talking about right now. Can you, can you help me with that? Or, hey, the tool's not working the way that you said it would work. I need help with that. Like, those are really important skills that even adults don't have, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that goes back, Aaron, ultimately to, you know, education. Education has always trained us that being wrong is bad. And yeah. and if you look at raising your hand, while raising your hand isn't necessarily saying that I'm wrong or I don't have it right, but you're pointing out someone else's fault or something else that's not working, and people are apprehensive to do that. And even in that situation of a screen share, that's not necessarily a fault. Like just sometimes the technology, no matter what you do, it just doesn't launch it. But it's amazing how that conditioning over, what, 13 years plus higher ed really creates a societal culture. Yeah. Mm. That's what ultimately we're fighting every time that we're trying to do creativity and innovation. I mean, just think about like the basic human condition of how we're formatted to think is we start learning conversation and in-person interaction from the time that we're born. That as a basic skill that you probably bring with you. When you go to this virtual environment, I would argue that you need to spend an exponential amount of time getting used to and establishing norms for how you react when you're in the middle of a Teams call or a Zoom meeting versus when you're in a room and how you react to that. And that's going to affect the comfort level, to your point earlier, if this is a longer term reality. And even if the higher education systems and companies in general with their training have to start adapting to an increase in distributed work and remote work, however you want to use that word, there's going to have to be some intentionality around teaching and building in 
ways to help people learn just how to behave in that environment or like what the norms of that environment are. And right now, we've taken something that was traditionally delivered in person and then just tried to kind of hack the tools to deliver a similar product using these tools. And it's just not quite the same. Well, not to mention they've got to have all the tools. Let's just take what we were just talking about, presenting to a room full of people, education or work environment, all the same. When you're doing that in a room, you have the digital content sitting at the table like it's anyone else at the table, and you're able to see all things all at the same time and continuously pivot your head and see if people are engaged, not engaged, how they're reacting to what you're saying. If you're a really good speaker, you're never even looking at the content. Most of these technology tools, however, for you to actually share the content, it has to be the primary screen and you no longer see anyone else, unless you have a multi-screen solution and have an aptitude to use those tools and technologies in that way. I, you know, I would argue that for you to even get to a point that you could virtually replicate the human world and the physical world, there's a lot that you need to add to the equation. Well, yeah, I think it's funny, too, to think about how one of the biggest things that we've tried to reinforce to them is the importance of being able to give a nonlinear presentation or to share information in a nonlinear way. You know, we spend a lot of time in the class trying to break them out of the idea of how do I build the PowerPoint deck for the last presentation and just make sure that each slide progresses through. And one of the ways that we've done that is by physically forcing them to use space differently. Like, you know, this last semester, one of the iterations we did was their first sprint, their presentation had to be analog. They weren't allowed to use anything electronic and they had as many boards or as much of the space as they wanted to use was available to them. That forced them to do nonlinear things like bounce from one board to the other or take us on a journey that went in a circle that right. gets really hard when you're talking about trying to screen share on a 13-inch laptop, right? I mean, even if you got dual <laughs> monitors, it still doesn't really work the same. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've been beating this up for a little while now, and I know mm -hmm. that originally we intended to talk about the class and where it was, but then we, you know, were hit with a global issue that we had to adapt, which is kind of what we've done in this conversation. How has this impacted creativity and co-creation? I feel like we've talked about that a little bit where it's kind of slowed things down, at least from my perspective. Have you seen that any other way, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, I think it has, unfortunately, it slowed things down. And I think that it speaks to human nature to some degree of no matter how ambitious a person is, there's an innate desire or natural default to go back to kind of like, okay, well, what do I actually just have to get done, right? Like, and I don't think that that's a fault of people, but we just generally naturally like, okay, you know, everybody's got a to-do list. How do I get through it? And so one of the things that we've seen or what I've seen at least in experience through this is that when so many things are working against you to just live in the natural world of interacting and bouncing ideas off of people and everything else, unfortunately, it does default back to, well, how long is this class or how long is this meeting or how long is this project and what do I need to do to just get it done, right? And was this creative enough versus feeling the freedom and space to just live and be in the moment and allow that to guide your creativity. Gotcha. So Dominic, if you had to take what Aaron said, knowing the impact it's had, would you build a problem statement around that for creating a solution? The problem statement actually is interesting because I don't think it has to do with the COVID-19 or the virtual world that we're living in or even the normal world. I think it's actually spanning that but it's getting down to what are the fundamental human behaviors or core reactions to this concept of ideation. 
and just brainstorming and blue sky thinking. Because even in the class, what we found is that most people are not really comfortable with it. And the people that are super comfortable with it, everyone else wants to alienate and doesn't really want to hang out with because it makes them feel uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 it's really strange. Like the person that's going to push you to the limit and make you think about something you've never thought about before, most of the other people are like, okay, that's a little out there. That person's strange. I'm not sure I want to go there. And honestly, whether it's the work environment or the education environment, I think we're all so conditioned to meet the objectives, check the box, do it to the best that we can with the least amount of resources possible. And that's happening even more now, especially when you look at an economy that's being clamped down on. Interesting thing is the companies that are going to be super successful on the back end of this are the ones that are willing to ideate and invest and try and beat up problems. So the ultimate to your problem statement How do you ideate in the most efficient way possible to get the maximum gains? And I think that's where some of the stuff that Aaron's been doing with the class and that we've been working with in terms of using tools to come up with rapid ideas, coming up with tools to evaluate them and push them to the next limit, setting up sprints to have multiple different groups continue to build on ideas, looking at Brainstorming sessions is no more than 20 minutes. Even looking at discussions of those brainstorming sessions of five to 10 minutes max, like some of those things that we're starting to set up, we're seeing huge gains from. And they can apply to the physical and the virtual world if we're willing to open up our minds to it. I've noticed that the students who you could tell already at the beginning of the semester when we were together in person There was the students that you could tell had a natural proclivity toward this or a natural curiosity, and that's something that you can't teach. You either have a curiosity or not, right? The ones that naturally had that, that curiosity, almost by osmosis, kind of drove the rest of their team to kind of level up to meet them there, even if they weren't 100% there. And what I've noticed through the, the going remote process is that, unfortunately, those people who are already creative and curious, they're still going there. They're the ones that you can tell are using all the tools that they've been presented with and playing with them on their own just to see what they'll do and then coming back and telling the class, look what I did, right? But then it's not happening in a way that, you know, we're not sharing the experience in the same way we would have of all being together to do that. And so, unfortunately, it's not leveling the others up. And I think that's a really important part that applies not just to the classroom, but in these environments, we used to be able to all be together and know, hey, if we insert key players into certain teams, even they're going to help really like drive the culture. And I think culture driving in terms of being creative is a lot more difficult when you can't all be together and experience that. Not as much comes out by osmosis. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. What else is on your mind before we go? Aaron, what other things would you like to know about the class? What are you thinking about for the future of it? What's keeping you up at night? I think a a closing thing that I'm really thinking about and and taking away from all of this is that I've heard a lot of people talk, even pre-pandemic, about how they want to tout the value of like, you know, I could do my job from anywhere. I don't need to be in the office. And then I've heard a lot of people during this situation say, see, this is just reinforcing that we don't really all have to be together. We've been able to keep our productivity the same. And the challenge that I want to give to that is the idea of it being possible to continue to maintain your creativity or maintain your productivity in the midst of being remote or distributed, 
versus is it enhancing? Because when we're all hopefully, and I think we're all looking forward to the day when we're allowed to make a choice of whether we would put our work remote or be distributed at various times versus be all together. I just hope that we all take from this the realization that there are certain things that there's types of work that actually were better done distributed and remote. We realize there's certain things that for efficiency, we should go ahead and be distributed and remote for, even if we don't have to be, but that we should also value the things that we've learned about the type of work that actually really is valuable to be together for. And if we can do that, then I think we'll actually come away from this with some takeaways that have optimized our learnings from it. So the, the biggest myth here would be to just use this as a case study to prove to ourselves, see, we can all work remotely and it doesn't hurt productivity at all. There's a difference between we're capable of it versus it's beneficial or enhances. And I, I hope that we'll yeah. all reflect on that a little bit after this. What about you, Dominic? What are, what are your final thoughts? We'll just put on errands. No reason to go anywhere else than that. I think the real question that everyone needs to think about is how do they define productivity? And is productivity checking boxes or is productivity rethinking what the box is and why the box is there? The reality is work from home and working in distributed ways and you guys were kind of talking about this in a different way a second ago, is is okay for communication and is okay for task-based working. But when you start talking about collaboration and you start talking about innovation and creativity and curiosity and inspiration and pushing the limits of what's possible, which may involve tinkering and testing and prototype and hypothesizing and everything that has to go with research and development and the creative functions, that can't happen in a single space and that can't happen behind a single piece of 13-inch glass attached to a keyboard. It doesn't work that way and it's not going to work that way. If people really want to be creative and push the limits of what their companies can do, they, they've got to continue to adapt and do something else. And, you know, if there's anything that we're learning with this class and we're learning as an architecture firm, Brian, in this, is that creativity in a complex world with very strict constraints takes planning and takes diligence and is harder than in a world that's free-flowing. And that's why you see some of the most creativity in the world associated with people that are free-flowing and willing just to kind of go with the wind. But we don't have the wind right now. We've got stale air of an office. So in stale <laughs> air of an office, we've got to introduce the fan. We've got to open the windows. you got to do all these things that allow people to open up. I would agree. Thank you both, Aaron, Dominic. Thanks for joining in on this conversation. Hopefully we can do this again under better circumstances where we can be in the room and be more creative. So thank you both for joining. Glad you could do it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for being a part of this along with us. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, for this episode, Real-Time Innovation, Ideating the Future, with Aaron Bradley of the University of Cincinnati and Dominic Iacobucci of BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I am Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.